This episode is sponsored by Macmillan Audio. During the summer months, I really want to spend less time indoors looking at screens. But when you're in the mood to watch a Hallmark movie, what can you do? Listen to a fun rom-com audiobook, of course. Download Play to Win, written by Jody Slaughter and read by Lacey Laurel. It's a sizzling romance set in a small town where a winning lottery ticket leads to a second chance at love for estranged high school sweethearts. Jodie Slaughter's first novel, Bet On It, was beloved by fans on Bookstagram and BookTok and got rave reviews, and this follow-up is another perfect escape. Start listening to Play to Win by Jodie Slaughter now, wherever audiobooks are sold. Hello and welcome to A Bookish Home. I'm your host, librarian and writer, Laura Zaro-Kopinski, and today Julie Carrick-Dalton is here to discuss The Last Beekeeper, which takes place in a not-so-far-away future in which all of our pollinators are now extinct. Charlotte McConaughey, author of Once There Were Wolves, says, Dalton's passion and love for the natural world vibrates gloriously off every page. The Last Beekeeper is not only an intriguing mystery, but an important reminder of what we stand to lose. Julie Carrick Dalton is the Boston-based author of The Last Beekeeper and Waiting for the Night Song, named a most anticipated 2021 novel by CNN, Newsweek, and more, and an Amazon editor's pick for Best Books of the Month. A Breadloaf, Tin House, and Grub Street Novel Incubator alum, Julie is a frequent speaker on the topics of fiction in the age of climate crisis, at universities, conferences, and more. Her writing has appeared in Chicago Review of Books, Newsweek, The Boston Globe, and other publications. Julie, thank you for coming on A Bookish Home, and congratulations on The Last Beekeeper. I was completely riveted by it. I thought it was so thought-provoking and was also just so invested in the characters, and I'm excited to talk about it. Oh, well, thanks for having me here. Um, I'm I'm excited to chat with someone who's read it as it just came out. It's um, been such a joy to speak with people about it after, you know, sitting with it for so long. Oh, yes, I know. Probably so isolating. And then you get to kind of bring it out into the world. Um, well, I thought it was such an interesting and, um, you know, it, it takes place in the future, but it's so timely um, thinking about our pollinators and the bees and, and everything that's happening. And so I would love to hear a little bit more about the premise for the book and um, the characters we meet. Sure. So as you said, it's set in the very near future and I never put a date on it. I wanted to feel like it's floating just a little bit in front of us, that this could happen at any minute. So it's a near future story about a beekeeper and his daughter, Sasha, as the world's pollinator population collapses. Um, and this collapse sets them sets the world into a food security crisis. You know, our agriculture, the, the food that humans eat, like 30% of our food comes from pollinator or pollinated crops. So we lose a third of the food when we lose our pollinators, creates economic, political instability, um, you know, international relations are affected by it. So that's all in the background of the story. But the story is very tightly focused in the foreground on Sasha, the beekeeper's daughter, and about her relationship with him as it unravels as the bees die off. And then in her um, young adult life, as she tries to put a life back together in this broken world, um, forming a, a found family of people she meets along the way and trying to reconcile her relationship with her father, um, what his um, what his role might have been in the death of the last bee colony and maybe what her role was. And it's kind of an exploration of, of memory and the fallibility of memory about finding a new way to live in a broken world and really about hope. I mean, it's a dark premise, you know, losing our pollinators. 
But it's really a story about how we can find hope in dark places and not losing sight of the beauty that's left in the world, even when we're losing things. I love that. And, you know, I only just recently started kind of reading in this genre of climate fiction. And um, I'm guessing there are listeners who maybe haven't read one of these books before. So could you maybe just talk a little bit about kind of the family of books we would find The Last Beekeeper in? And I'm curious if that's sort of what you set out to write or if it just kind of happened that way. Yeah. So climate fiction is sort of this new category of fiction. We talk about it. Some people call it cli-fi, like science fiction is to sci-fi, climate fiction is to cli-fi. And um, it's kind of, it also has, not, not everybody agrees on the term. Some people feel that it's pejorative, that it reduces um, the uh, a book to one thing. I don't feel that way. Some authors don't like having their book referred to as science fiction, especially if it's on the more literary end. Um, But I think that climate fiction, like my own definition, is fiction that engages climate science in a meaningful way. In other words, it makes us think. It presents information. It leaves us with questions um, about climate change and climate science. And it's not really a genre because these books that people refer to as climate fiction, they can be you know, thrillers, they can be dystopian, post-apocalyptic, they can be horror novels, but they can also be literary novels. They can be young adult. They can be romance novels. There are rom-coms that are engaging climate themes. So I feel like, and oh, and a young adult, that's a huge category that's really embracing um, bringing climate science into stories because it's the future of our, you know, of young people. They're going to be staring it down um, in ways that we might not be around to see. So I, it doesn't surprise me that more books are engaging climate science, but it's really funny the way we talk about them because my publisher usually calls my uh, calls the last beekeeper a literary thriller and then they might add on with climate themes or environmental themes or they might call it a book club novel that engages climate Mm -hmm. themes or environmental themes so in a lot of ways these it's ended it's a tag on to another genre in a lot of ways it's a rom-com with climate themes or it's not my book it's not a rom-com but you know that you might talk about a book and then add on the climate element as like a supporting character to the story. Um, yeah, and it's, it's, that's so and interesting. I don't think it's, it's almost like more of a theme. Yeah. So I genre, think it's evolving. Yeah. yeah. I think it's an evolving theme. Some people call it eco-fiction or eco-lit. And um, some people have very strong opinions about what they want to call it. I don't have strong opinions. If you want to call it climate fiction or eco-fiction or anything you want, as long as you read it and want to talk about it, that's a-okay with me. And how did you... Um, get into writing in this area. So were you someone who um, had done a lot of like research on climate change or did you have um, like, I guess, how did you kind of get interested in this? Yeah, it wasn't a conscious decision. My um, first novel, Waiting for the Night Song, which came out in 2021, uh, was a story set in the woods and mountains and forest of New Hampshire. And it was about a woman who comes, returns to her hometown after um, several decades of having been away. And I was looking at like, what's different when someone comes home, you know, 20 to 30 years later. And so I was looking at the region in New Hampshire. It's where I am right now, actually, in New Hampshire. And I was looking at the changes in climate. And it was really surprised to learn that in New Hampshire, the summer temperatures have gone up by four degrees average over the past century, which is very disproportionate to the rest of the country and the world. So I was thinking, what would make, what would, how would 
would that change a community? How would it change what crops are growing, what trees are thriving, what invasive species are moving in, um, how we do our jobs, how it affects fires, things like that. So it, it got in my head. And the more research I did, the more fascinated I became with the idea of slow burning changes in climate, not the disaster stories, not the wall of water rushing in and, you know, islands sinking, not those one moment disaster stories, but the slow burn of how our slowly changing climate is changing the way we interact with our ecosystems. Um, and, and it's not an even distribution of, of impacts. You know, some communities are feeling it much, much more already. And then their communities aren't feeling it at all, which is a real privilege. So um, that idea just got in my head. And as I was writing, waiting for the night song, uh, it, it just kept bubbling to the surface with all the all the themes of the plot, with the character development. And I realized it's just because it's something I think about a lot. I think about climate change a lot. And so it just bubbles up into my stories. And then when I wrote The Last Beekeeper, again, I didn't you know set out with this intention. But I recently signed a contract for two more books with Macmillan, and they both also engage themes related to climate science. So I think I think that's just how my brain sees the world. So that's how... I write stories. I think that's great because I think it's helping us as readers see the world more that way. And I think with so many things, so many issues, the power of story to get people to maybe change the way they're thinking or change habits, I think is so powerful. I think reading about a character who is facing the repercussions of climate change um, further along in the future, I think can be just so much more impactful than, you know, looking at statistics or something for um, getting people thinking, at least that, that's been my experience reading the books that have some of these themes. And the other thing I thought was so interesting as you're watching this play out, you kind of create a very it just interesting sort of political climate that's come out of this. Can you talk about that a little bit and so what it's meant for the restrictions and, and fear and things that people are living under kind of in the world of this book? Yeah, thanks for asking about that, because that was a really part of a big part of the development of the story was the the political and economic backdrop of the story. So when the pollinators disappear and I, I create a situation in the book where they die off more rapidly than we're expecting, like right now, we know we're losing our pollinators. And, you know, we, you know, you see save the bee hashtags and things, but we're not expecting them to all die off tomorrow. You know, we're, we're, we think we have this long trail you know, tail ahead of us when, how they're going to decline. Um, but that happens quickly. And there's some, uh, I don't want to give any spoilers away, but there's like a, a, situ- a situation, <laughs> I'll try to be careful here, where um, the, uh, scientists do something that may or may not have sped up the decline of the pollinators. And so there's a mystery surrounding that. And then there's, is it maybe a cover up? And it, it's involving uh, corporations, it's involving the government, it's involving international entities because um, no one wants to be blamed for the death of the pollinators or the collapse of the pollinators in a way that could have impact on other countries or other economies. So there's um, this combination of, of wanting to bring the bees back or save the bees. Um, and then there's also this competing interest of not wanting to be blamed for the demise of the bees. And those two um 
desires are at, at odds with each other in this book. Um, to to help save the bees might be revealing um, some culpability for someone. So it, it's I think that's a, a theme in our own politics. Like nobody wants blame. Everybody wants to point at somebody else. Right. And that nobody, they want to shirk responsibility, and even even if owning up to um, our own culpability might be for the greater good of society, is our own interest more important than the greater good of society? So it's really there's a lot of themes about you know individual responsibility and individual action versus the good of the many. And that, so I create yeah. a you know that there's a dystopian vibe in the book for sure that are you know. If you can imagine, like for people who haven't read the book, to imagine the future mashed up with the Dust Bowl, because it's in the future, but we've lost the electrical grid in a lot of areas. There's massive unemployment, starvation, hunger, political unrest. There's tent cities popping up. So it has this vibe of, like, you know, the Great Depression era, Dust Bowl era um, in the future. And those same, I, I really drew on history to create this future of, you know, what the Dust Bowl would, might look like in the future. Um, you know, we still have some of our technology, but people are having to forage for food, trying to, you know, trying to grow food without pollinators. And it, it you know, I sent the, all those ripples forward into the world, trying to imagine how, how the loss of this, you know, these tiny creatures would impact all the biggest things in our lives. And our politicians do what they do. They circle around themselves and try to protect themselves and protect their people. And who are the people who are suffering? It kind of magnifies the inequalities that already exist in the world. If we lose a third of the food, who gets it? Who gets the remaining food? Right. So it just really like amplifies um, things that are already happening in our world. That's so interesting to think about it, kind of calling back to the depression and, and the Dust Bowl. And you really do see that play out. And in Sasha's case, you know, she's sort of trying to survive in a sense by banding together with some other people. And that was one of the aspects of the book that I really liked the most. I love reading about found families. And um, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about developing her character and a little bit sort of the sense of community that ends up surrounding her. Yeah, thank you for asking that. That found family is my favorite group of characters I've ever written. And I loved building the relationships between them and they're complicated. Um, and I was very, I miss them. It's, just, it's like, I miss them like people in my life. Having, when I finished the book, um, I was very hard to let go of them. So the, the found family, um, so I should also explain a little bit. So the book's written in two timelines. There's Sasha's perspective when she's an 11 year old girl as the pollinators are dying off. And then there's a, a gap, and then we get her time, her her point of view when she's 22, and the pollinators have been gone for a decade. So she returns to her family farm at 22. Her father has been imprisoned. That's not a spoiler. You'll know this from the first chapter. Her father went to prison when she was 11 um, for reasons that are kind of mysterious, and she doesn't quite understand. And when she returns to her family farm looking for answers from her childhood, she finds the house occupied by a group of squatters which could be very dangerous and scary in this kind of dystopian world where people are very vigilant about protecting what little they have. Um, so approaching the squatters is dangerous. They could have weapons. They could, you know, force her to leave or rob her. But she wants to find answers so bad that she goes anyway. And so it turns out they're wary of each other in the beginning, but this group of squatters ends up taking her in, in her own home. Um, 
and they form a family and they've all come to this farm. There's there's four of them living there. There's um, three other 20-somethings. There's a couple, Gino and Ian, and a, um, a young woman named Hallie, who is Sasha's age, and then an, a woman in her mid-50s named Millie, who's kind of the maternal figure of the house. And they've all come there with wounds, you know, uh, you know, lost family or re- rejection, or um, the, in Hallie's case, her only living relative is her sister who's in state care because she's a minor and no one will let her, um, Hallie take custody of her because she doesn't have a job or a permanent address. So they all have these broken parts in them and they've come to this farm, which is really run down now. There's no electricity or running water anymore. And they're all bringing their broken parts and trying to rebuild a family. Um, and they they give each other, you know, what would they, they? I guess what they do is, even in their brokenness, they're able to to heal the wounds in each other a little bit, and lean on each other. They also fight. They keep secrets from each other, and don't always agree on things, just like any other family. But they they there's trust, and that I think is the forming the trust between them was this. Um, joy for me and the the relationships to them evolved in ways I didn't expect you know you asked how I created the characters they didn't come to me fully formed um the squatters all showed up as sort of cardboard figures while Sasha was much more well developed and I needed people to play off of Sasha's hopes fears dreams inadequacies and kind of be a sounding board and the more she interacted with them the more these characters revealed themselves to me in ways that really surprised me and there's uh, two of the characters that I, I don't want to give anything away, but Gino and Millie revealed themselves to me in really surprising ways at the end of the book that I didn't didn't see. And when they showed themselves to me, it was just like, oh, it was there all along. And they were there for each other in ways that they that I didn't even understand, which was um yeah, that for as a writer, that is such a um a joy when your characters have been with you working towards something that you didn't even know until they they, they tell you. Yeah, that was actually going to be one of my questions. If, you know, it took you a while to figure out what, you know, decision Sasha was going to make and the other characters, and even in particular, to find your ending, did you go in knowing that ending? Did it surprise you as you were getting to know them and and their um, inner lives? So that's funny because I did always know the ending of this book, which is the exact opposite of my experience when I wrote Waiting for the Night Song, my first book, because that book, Waiting for the Night Song, actually in my computer somewhere, there are eight different endings to Waiting for the Night Song. Oh, wow. Because, yeah, and, I, and then not just tweaks on the same ending, you know, a little bit different. There are eight endings because I wasn't sure how to resolve the story. Whereas the opposite was with The Last Beekeeper. I always had the vision for exactly how that book was going to end. How I got there and how the character arts developed along the way was the mystery for me, not what was going to happen in the end. I always knew. And um, I like that process better because I always had a like a destination in mind. I had a goal. And as I was building the character arcs and the relationship arcs, I always knew where they were going to land. So I could, I wanted to build, um, you know, an arc that would be satisfying for each individual character and each relationship and the plot for them all to collide at that one moment at the end where all of, all of these issues, you know, it's not a, a story that's tied up neatly in the end. It doesn't have this very neat ending. There's some ambiguities in the ending, but I needed them to be satisfying ambiguities. So, um, yeah, I always felt like I knew where I was going, but I wasn't sure exactly how I was going to get there. That's so interesting. And that is a, a very good way of putting it. It was satisfying ambiguities. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, 
Yeah, I was wondering too, because obviously you're sort of predicting things into the future and you mentioned drawing on, on the past. Did it take a long time to do some research for this book? Were you drawing on other things that you'd researched for Waiting for the Night song? Um, how did that work? So the, the the reason I wrote this story is, um, so I've kept bees um, for years and I was keeping bees in my backyard. And I was li- at the time I was living in a small town outside of Boston, Massachusetts. I live downtown Boston in an apartment now. But um, when I was keeping bees in my yard, uh, they, they were thriving. They were doing really well. And then on this one, like very, you know, normal day in August, all 40,000 of my bees died in a single day in a pile in my yard. Oh, wow. And it was really traumatic for me because I thought like, am I a bad beekeeper? Did I do something wrong? Like what happened? And it didn't fit any of the things I'd been reading about colony collapse disorders when they all fly off and don't return. And you know, no one knows why it wasn't a parasite or like a bacterial viral or fungal infection because that would have worked its way through a hive slowly not in a single day, in a single pile. So I came to realize that my bees had been poisoned. Um, and at first I'm like, who did this? And I'm looking up and down the street at all my neighbors. And then I, you know, I quickly realized that it was a, probably a lawn chemical someone was using. And the, pro- the problem wasn't that one person applied a toxic chemical. The problem is that these chemicals are legal and they're available. And so probably someone put this chemical in their yard and had no idea that they killed my bees. But what it made me wonder is if these, and in, in Europe and other countries, these aren't legal. Like these chemicals that we allow so that people can have their perfect green lawns, they are not legal in other countries because of what they're doing to our pollinators. So I was thinking, you know, imagining what's happening to, you know, the local pollinators, the native pollinators, the bees, the wasps, the hornets and mosquitoes and butterflies. And what if they all died? And that's where the book came from. Like, what if they all died? And so I, I'd had experience as a beekeeper, but I'm not an expert. I'm not an entomologist or a scientist. So I reached out to um, a professor at the veterinary college at Tufts University, which was near me, and she's a specialist in um, beekeeping. So she worked with me and I ran all the science by her. And, um, you know, she would guide me if it wasn't, you know, quite accurate. But more importantly, what I needed from her was to, for her to help me develop this. There's a speculative bit of science that I inject in the story towards the end, um, which is kind of like the big reveal secret of the story. And I needed it to make sense. It's not something that has actually happened, but I needed it to be plausible. I needed it to be something that a scientist or beekeeper would read and, and not laugh you know, something that, they, oh, that I could see that happening. You know, I could like, like that this woman doesn't know what she's talking about. I didn't want that. I wanted them to say, oh, wow, that could happen. Or what if that happened? Or how could that really happen? So she helped me with the plot and with the science to make sure it was logical, believable, plausible, and and that people could understand it when I was reading it. I didn't want to go too deep. And I, I in the first few drafts I did, my editor had to rein me and she's like, too much bee science. <laughs> like nobody needs to know all of that. So I had to dial it back um, and find that balance between presenting enough information that the reader would believe it, but not putting in so much science that their eyes glaze over. So hopefully I hit that um, sweet spot. Um, but I did so with the help of a scientist who knew what she was talking about. Yeah, well, definitely. Um, I think I think it worked. Um, <laughs> well, I wanted to. Yeah, I wanted to ask too. Um, I know it mentioned in your bio that you are a um, novel incubator alum, and that just got me wondering a little bit about what your journey to sort of becoming a published author was like. 
Yeah. So I was a journalist for most of my career. I still write some articles, but I'm not employed by any magazines or newspapers. Um, I just do articles here and there. So I'd always been writing. I've always written short stories. And, you know, when I was a teenager, I was writing angsty, really bad poetry. It's just always been something, you know, I've always been <laughs> writing, even, you know, outside of the journalism. Um, and when I have four children and when they were younger, you know, I was writing little scraps of time thinking like, oh, well, this is a good story. This is with Waiting for the Night Song. And it took me 13 years to scrap that story together because I was writing it in my minivan in between ballet classes and dentist appointments and, you know, work at, you know, I'm trying on weekends to squeeze it in. Um, so it took a long time to get that first book together. But then I, and I went back to school and got a master's in creative writing. But even that didn't make me all of a sudden feel like a writer yet, like a fiction writer. I felt like I was learning tools, but I wasn't a writer. When I took the novel Incubator, which is a program in, in, through Grub Street in Boston, and it's a one-year, very intensive, it's not it's not an MFA, but it's like an MFA level commitment and intensity that you take a year. You, it's a competitive program that they pick 10 novelists every year who have a complete manuscript but are unagented and have not been published um, but published novelists and they pick 10 writers and they put you with an instructor for a year. And it's about a 20 to 25 hour a week commitment um, that you're reading each other's books, you're studying, you're doing homework, you're re you know revising this manuscript. And that's where I became a writer, like a fiction writer and, and owned my craft and believed in myself and under started to learn about the industry. So at the end of that year, um, I came out with a manuscript that was, you know, for reasonably well polished and in good shape. And I didn't think I could make it better on my own. I felt like I had done the work and put everything I had into that book. Um, and I went to a, a writer's conference called the Muse in the Marketplace in Boston, where you can, you pay money and you get a, a, a consulting um, time with agents and editors. You pick who you want to meet with. And it's not meant to be a pitch where your expectation is the agent's going to offer you representation. It's meant to be a critique where they look at your query letter. And I think they read the first 20 pages of my book and I had paid them to do this. So I was paying for their expertise not to expecting an offer of representation. So um, I met with an agent named Stacy Testa at Writer's House, and she gave me a lot of feedback and, you know, think, told me what she liked about it, what needed work, what she had questions about, and said, when you're finished with the whole manuscript, when you're ready, you know, send it to me. I'd like to read the whole thing. And so I put that in my back pocket, and I spent the next several months revising, and I sent it to Stacy along with a bunch of other agents. And I got, a, um, you know, I got some requests for the full manuscript, and um, interest, but it ended up being Stacy, the first one um, that had shown oh, wow. interest that I that I ended up signing with, and and it was she wasn't the only query. There were others in between, but she ended up being the one that I um, and I had a couple offer agent offers. But so what what happened was, you know, you hear these stories of people querying for years and hundreds of rejections. I did not experience that. I had a very fortunate time. I always think about it is that I just queried the right agent first. Somebody who has 300 rejections, <laughs> but lands an agent, they just happen to query the right agent at number 300. It's not because my book was any better. It's just, I found the right agent early. So that was fortunate for me, but it gave me this false sense of confidence that, oh, maybe this book is amazing. <laughs> like maybe I'm awesome and I'm going to just land that big publishing deal right away. But that's not what happened. So we went out on submission. Now, Stacey and I revised the book for about, you know, six months or a year. Um, and then we went on submission and it took a year to sell Waiting for the Night Song. And I was it was a very difficult oh, wow. year. I was, 
I was, because it was a real blow because I had this false sense of like, wow, I got an agent right away and I got a great agent. So this is going to be, you know, like I'm going to be the unicorn. <laughs> I'm going to be the one that sells their book right away. <laughs> but oh boy, did it not happen that way. So I was very, um, you know, stressed out about it. And so I channeled my stress into writing a new book. Um, and that was The Last Beekeeper. And I wrote that whole draft for The Last Beekeeper while um, my agent was trying to sell the first book. And then after a year, we got this offer from Forge Books at Macmillan. And, and so Stacy, my agent, immediately pivoted, took the offer and was like, oh, and there's another book. Would you like this one too? And they bought both books in one fell swoop. Oh, um, wow. So- That's awesome. So it had some like, you know, it was a roller coaster ride. It was like, yay, I got an agent. Oh my gosh, it's never going to sell. Yay, I sold two books and then I have to, you know, you know, finish them. <laughs> so it was um, a roller coaster ride. Yeah. I just always think it's so helpful to hear about those different paths and, you know, what goes, the part that's easy for one person is hard for the other person. And just it's helpful to kind of um, show that process. Well, I do always love to hear what authors have been enjoying in their own reading lives. Are there any books you'd want to recommend? Yeah. So um, my favorite recent read is a book called The Light Pirate by um, Lily Brooks Dalton. She's not related to me. We are both Daltons writing about climate, but we're not related. (laughs) It is a spectacular lush novel. It's set in Florida in the near future when Florida has become basically uninhabitable because of the the, um, effects of hurricanes and rising waters and flooding. And, but it's about the people who stay behind and how they adjust and pivot and has this theme of the climate change is going to change all ecosystems. So we can't outrun it. They're just running, you know, we'd see a lot of climate migration happening. So if we all just keep running for the, the, the least offensive place to live, um, you know, we're not going to ever be still. And it's really about just, okay, this is the place they've gotten. It's changing. How do I change? to adapt to the place oh, instead of running to a new place. And it's a beautiful story about resilience and heart and like the, you know, the, um, you know, and the human spirit. And it's a dark story. Like, and I think about it, it has a lot of similarities to stories I tell and that they have a dark premise, but there's light in them because of the way the people in it respond and the hope that's left for, you know, that it isn't just, dark and bleak and awful and everything's going to be terrible. It's about, okay, we have a really tough situation, but where, where is that light we can walk towards and, and make, make this situation better. Um, so that's a beautiful one. And then, and I'm right now reading um, a really great debut novel by, it's called The Night Flowers by um, Sarah Herkenrother. And um, I think it just came out last week. And um, it's, it's just a, it's a really, um, it's just a really heartfelt story and I haven't finished it yet, but I am, I'm, you know, eagerly tearing through it. So I, as she's a debut author that's making a really big splash already. So I would look, I would, I would definitely recommend the night flowers for anybody looking for a, a new voice to fall in love with. Yeah. Oh, those both sound great. I will definitely link to those. And I really hope that listeners go pick up a copy of the last beekeeper. It was just such a fascinating and timely read with characters that I, I think we end up feeling the same as you did writing. We're very sad to leave them when when it's over. <laughs> so um, definitely highly recommend it. And um, Julie, just thank you for coming on and best of luck with your future project. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure to chat with you. For links to all of the books mentioned on this week's episode, you can visit abookishhome.com. If you are enjoying the show, I hope you take a minute to subscribe and also rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. 
And if you enjoyed this episode, I would encourage you to share it on social media to help other people find the show and this episode. Thanks for listening, everyone, and happy reading.